We're in Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13 this morning. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have been renewed. You have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any any, and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And also in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 through 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may, have, or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. In Colossians 2, verses 2 through 3. My purpose is that you may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom, in whom are all hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We get to look at a passage today in Philippians chapter 4 that when you heard it read, you probably thought, some of you anyway, oh, I've heard that before, and you might be skeptical. Because what Paul says here is almost unbelievable. It certainly is difficult to believe in the context of our culture. I mean, we, we live in a time when I think one of our greatest struggles as a people is to be content or satisfied. You know, it just seems to be missing uh, on, a, on a global scale. Uh, to learn to be content regardless of our circumstances. You know, we, we have, um, because we live in a consumer culture, we have advertisers that play upon this. They know how discontent the human heart is. They know how we are constantly pursuing that one next thing, that one thing. If we can just buy it and consume it, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll be happy, then I'll have peace, then I'll be content. And so they put out these slogans, all these slogans that make their way into our minds, even more so than we think. And I I went through several over the past years, and it's just, I'm grieved at how well I know these. In 1985, there was a Calvin Klein's ad that went, between love and madness lies, do you know this? My wife didn't know this either, obsession. You remember that one? Yeah. Maxwell have coffee, good to the last... Mm. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's <laughs> about Nike's just, you know, these well, some of my favorite ready Burger King have it your way Sprite, probably the most obscene in this obey your thirst. And of course, McDonald's, you deserve You deserve a break. Have it your way. Obey your thirst. You deserve a break today. We have advertisers today. They're going to spend $3.5 million in 30 seconds to get their slogan into your head. To get you to think, if I have that, if I consume that, then I will be content. $3.5 million. They're not wasting their money because they know that we buy this stuff. We think we deserve a break today. We want it our way. We do obey our thirst. They get it. In fact, I think they know us far better than we know ourselves. 
But Solomon was right. Vanity, vanity, all vanity. The individual in our culture, the supreme desire, the ultimate desire is to have what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. To be satisfied. And therefore, we try to consume. In fact, any product, and unfortunately, even churches today, can find temporal success if we appeal to that that selfish, intrinsic, sinful passion to to be satisfied deep within. Christopher Lash, in a great book called The Culture of Narcissism, he he pegs us well and he says, the self-centered American demands immediate gratification and lives in a state of, listen to this, restless, perpetual, unsatisfied desire. I mean, that's it. That's a snapshot of who we are as a people. And we see this ever-pressing movement on us by the culture to satisfy ourselves, to make ourselves happy, to be true to ourselves, whatever that means. So the question for us, and Paul presents us with this, is how do we fight against this? I mean, how do we fight against this onslaught that is only appeasing and preaching to our sin nature, which is, it's all about me, and I'm going to move through life thinking it's all about me. My wants, my desires, when I want it, when I desire it. Paul closes this phenomenal letter. He begins to close it. We're not going to close it today, but he begins to. And he's talking to a church that he loves deeply and he loves passionately. And he sees that they're growing in Christ. And he's edified them. He's rebuked them. He's encouraged them. He's admonished them. And here he gets to a point. He's saying, listen, you, you are yet there that sense of contentment that will enable you in the good times and the bad times to be at peace in Christ. And so he, he brings us to a close with a teaching that if we get, that he hoped they would get, would change the way we live, and as a result, change the glory that's given to God. The ultimate purpose that we are here for is to bring glory and honor to our Lord and Savior. And he tells them a secret, and we'll look at this, it's fantastic. A mystery that if they understand, not just know, but know and live out, that they will be a different church. If we understand this, we will be a different church and we'll have a different impact on our community and our culture. We won't be so easily swayed by these silly little slogans. Instead, we'll be moved and transformed by the gospel of grace and the very word of God. Three things I want you to see this morning. Paul understood people over possessions. Now that sounds simple, but in our time, it doesn't usually work that way. People over possessions, disposition over circumstance... And then thirdly, God's power over self-will. And he wants to communicate this to us. So listen. Now listen. Before I go on. Um, this week was a, was a particularly difficult week. So many things were going on. And, and usually I try to get my sermons done by Friday. And it was finished on Friday. Until yesterday morning. And, I, and I'm reading and I'm praying. And God's like, no, no, no. That's not how we're going to do this. I'm like... Lord, it's Saturday. I don't write sermons on Saturday. And so I had a long day yesterday. I got home about 5.30 and I went back into my study and I sat there. I'm like, okay. And so if this is rough at all, that's me, okay? It's not God. Listen to God's word, okay? I'm just a foolish man preaching the gospel of grace. So don't don't stumble on me, okay? Stumble on Christ. Listen to Christ. Point number one, Paul's love for people or possessions. He starts off in verse 10. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord 
that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And when we, what we see here is Paul, there's a deep sense of joy that he's receiving as a result of what it, it sounds like he, get, he got a check or something, right? They, they renewed his concern and there was a gift involved. And we know that because of some of the other verses we'll look at. And so first snapshot of this is you think, well, maybe he's happy because he got something in the mail. You know, he got a little, a little financial aid, a little help. Um, but we know that's not right because in verse 11 he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. He's saying, you renewed your concern for me. There's question as to what had happened. They had supported him. Maybe they were going through financial difficulty. They weren't a rich church. Uh, the distance was not traveled. You know, between Philippi and Rome, it was a great distance, not, not traveled much. And so, not sure why, but they had sent him aid, assistance. But this is, what, this is not what he's rejoicing over. And I love this. He says, I, I am rejoicing with the fact that you've expressed your love for me. And I rejoice over the fact that you're expressing your love for me because of your love for Christ. And I'm rejoicing over the fact that you and I love one another this deeply that you'd sacrifice like this because of our common love for Jesus Christ. And so the joy that he's expressing, he says twice the concern they have. And that word, it's, just, it's a terrible word in the English. In the Greek, it's phroneo. And that literally means to exercise your mind. But what he's saying is, I'm rejoicing over the sentiment of your heart. That you're thinking about me. That you're praying for me. That you love me so much that you'd send me aid in the midst of your difficulty. And you're sacrificing for this. And so he rejoices over it. The old adage, it's the thought that counts. And you say that and you're, yeah, right. It really does here. Paul's rejoicing over the fact that they were, they were thinking. They were exercising phreneo over him. That they, they were loving him. Now when I was a child... I thought like a child, I played like a child, and I received gifts like a child. We, uh, we lived here uh, when I was five or six. We moved here from Seattle-Tacoma area. Most of my family's still there. They had been there for years. And so Christmas and birthdays would come along. And instead of shipping packages, which was expensive then, just as it is now, most of the time we'd get cards. And in the cards, there was usually what? There was money. There was a check, sometimes cash, which for some reason the cash was always better than the check. It was more real, right? And, you know, so shamefully, I, we'd get the card. And I'd be so excited about the card. But not because of the person who sent it. And not because of what the card said. And not because of the expression of the love that the person sent. It was because of the money. And my mom can testify to this because, you know, we'd open the card and we'd go, ah, and she'd say, read the card. Who's it from? I don't know who's it from. Look at the cash, right? It was the gift. And we rejoiced deeply over the gift. Not caring about who sent it, not caring about the expression of love from the person who sent it, not caring at all about what it said about the relationship that you have with the person who sent it. Shameful. I mean, it was. I get it now. Many years later. I mean, I get it now. I'm not saying I don't like getting little things in the card. It's always nice, right? Now you get cards, Starbucks cards, things like that, you know? Um, But to get someone to communicate to you, to someone who stops and and they write a note or they send a letter and say, listen, I love you. I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. I know it's your birthday and you're getting older and that's not good, but I'm praying for you as you get older. That now is infinitely more important than anything they can put inside. Paul gets that. I pray you get that. 
that people, right relationships, are infinitely more important than the possession. I cannot tell you, well, I will tell you, but I won't tell you well, how oftentimes you have lifted me up and encouraged me with a simple note, a simple email, and a simple phone call. And I rejoice over them. And I rejoice not only in the word of encouragement, but in the love that you've expressed toward me. Paul's getting that here. This is a man who is waiting his own execution. He's awaiting, he's waiting to be put to death. And he receives this and he rejoices. And he says, I rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because he knows. He knows this expression of love is spiritual and it's supernatural. He knows this gift is sacrificial. And that's not what man does in and of himself. We are not. We do not put others and consider others more than ourselves. We don't do that. We don't put other people's needs above our own. You know, if we have, if we have a lot of you know, extra, then maybe we will. Maybe we will. You know, we're more apt to, to truly have it our way and, and, and live and keep money because we think we deserve it rather than um, having it the way that Christ would want it to have it. So the first thing we see here, it's simple and yet it's profound. And that is, Paul is rejoicing deeply. There's a secret that he's living out. And that's people over possessions. The second thing I want you to see is the importance of the disposition of the heart over our circumstances. Right disposition of the heart will move you through any time, good or bad, properly. Not the circumstances. We... When we go through a hard time, we try to change the external. Whatever's going on, we try to fix it. When we're going through a good time, we try to make it last, keep the external in place, right? Paul's saying, if you do that, you're working outside in and you miss the mark entirely. Look at what he says in verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, in light of the gift and in light of their expression of love, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, those two verses in all of sacred scripture have to be some of the most compelling and difficult verses when you apply it to modern American culture. I mean, Paul is saying the exact opposite of what our our marketeers and the advertising experts are, are betting on. Right? He's saying, I know something about God and my relationship with God that enables me to be content in every circumstance, whether poverty-stricken or prospering, whether suffering or joyful. And he says, in any and all, and literally in the Greek, it's at all times, in all situations, in all circumstances, I'm content. I'm satisfied. Twice he says, I've learned to be content. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Now, if we as a culture are, as Christopher Lesh described, people who demand immediate gratification and live lives in a state of restless, perpetual, unsatisfied desire, then this statement by the Apostle Paul, if it's true, is infinitely more valuable than all the therapy sessions and all the medications and all the things you consume all put together, if it's true. You would agree with that, right? That if this is true, if this is possible... To be content in any and all situations at all times, regardless of your circumstances, that's an amazing thing. Paul was at a place in his life when he said it and he meant it. This wasn't just a vain platitude and he wasn't, this wasn't hyperbole. He's saying, I mean this. This is who I am now in God, to be truly content. 
Now, we have a problem right off the bat with the word content. Because in our culture, that's not enough. That's like a C, right? Nobody says, you know, I really want to be content. No one says that. People say, I want to be happy. I want to be super happy. I want to be overjoyed, right? Content? No, no, no. That's not enough in our super indulged culture. And yet, in the Greek, that's exactly what it means. Super content. Super filled. It comes from, it's a really weird construction of the word. It's auto archaeo, and it means self, auto, and archaeo, which, which comes from a root which means to raise a barrier or set up a wall or to ward off. And it literally means then to ward off selfish desires, to be satisfied deep in a man's or a woman's soul. Satisfied. Not spiritually hungry, not emotionally thirsty, not constantly seeking over that one thing that if I have it, if I buy it, if I consume it, then, then I will be content. Paul's saying, I have it now, and I'll have it always, and I have it in all situations, regardless of my circumstances. And he doesn't say it like, what do you think of that? He doesn't say it like that. He says, I have this, and I want you to have it too. I know a secret, and I want you to know the secret too. Because not only will you be blessed, but as a people, you'll bring glory and honor to Christ. Proverbs 15.15, Paul's living out what the sage said, the cheerful heart has a continual feast. The cheerful heart in Christ, it's a continual feast. Now, the skeptic. So, I flash back 25 years, I hear this, and I think, no way, Paul's a liar. There's no way, there's no way, I don't care how spiritual you are. There's no way that someone can be content, can be deeply satisfied in all situations, at all times, regardless of circumstances. No one can do this. And yet that's exactly what Paul is saying. Literally, in any and every circumstance. And I get the criticism. I get the skepticism. In fact, I would say in light of how the church lives today, that's a right response. Because when we look at people, even in the church, people who have walked with Christ, professing Christ in their early age and walked in many years, what do we see? We see discontent. We see grumbling and murmuring. We see dissatisfaction in work. We see dissatisfaction in home. We see dissatisfaction in finances, dissatisfaction in church. Not contentment. And so I understand this criticism. But just because it's rare and indeed radical doesn't mean that it's not possible. Just because we don't see it a lot displayed amongst those who have been saved by grace doesn't mean that it's not a real mystery that can be lived out as the Apostle Paul was and calls us to. It's difficult because we know that in both poverty and prosperity there are specific challenges. The poverty, let's look at that first. To be in need or hungry or in want implies suffering. It implies pain. Physical, emotional, spiritual hardship of some kind. And in our culture, when we experience pain, the first thing we want to do is what? Let's fix it. We don't care what the underlying issue is. We don't even want to talk about the gospel issue. We don't want to deal with the faith issue. What's the problem? Let's just fix it. And we want to do it as fast as we can. Husbands, listen, you're really bad with your wife when you do it like this, right? Your wife's suffering. And as the husband, you say, let me fix you. How can I fix you? That's not always the right response. Sometimes it's the very opposite. Paul knew suffering. Let me, I'm just going to read to you really quickly from 2 Corinthians. Paul says, I have labored and I've toiled. So you can't say, well, Paul lived a charmed life. Paul, you know, he can say he's content because, you know, 
he's an apostle, right? I mean, he's an apostle. Listen to what Paul said. I have labored and I have toiled and I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. But yet, in all this, Paul says, I'm content. There's a deep, residing, joyful satisfaction that's a baseline in my life. So that no matter what's happening, I'm good. And that means that we know that he wasn't complaining at the allotments of God's providence. He wasn't shaking his fist at God. He wasn't constantly murmuring in discontent about the direction that his life was going, that he wanted, he wanted to go another way, and God's taking him this way. He was not envious. Listen, saints, this is hard. He was not envious of the prosperity of others. And he did not grumble when what he had was taken away. Rather, he was completely satisfied in the presence and comfort of God, no matter what he had. And now, we get that struggle. I mean, when we're hungry, when we're suffering, when we're full of anxiety, when we're sick, we're not well, we get that struggle. And that's hard, right? We say, I struggle being content when I am not doing well. I struggle being content when my relationships are, are fractured. I struggle being content when I can't pay the bills at the end of the month. We get that. But Paul says here, whether he is in poverty or prosperity, he's content. And you think, well, how difficult would it be to be content when things are good? When he has plenty. And literally, it means to superabound or to be in excess. Most of us would say, well, I can do that. Bring it. Okay? Bring the health. Bring the prosperity. Let's see how I fare with this. I can do that. If my life is going the exact direction that I want it to go, then surely I'll be content. If I'm making enough money to pay all my bills, put money in my savings account, and buy anything I want, then I'll be super content. If all my relationships are exactly as I want them to be, hear the word, I want them to be, then I will be content beyond measure. I can do that part. My physical condition, make it well. It'd be a cinch. And yet we know the reason that Paul puts it in here is because oftentimes the road to prosperity is littered with fractured lives. I mean, how many people have we seen? You say, I don't know many people, but how many people have we seen get rich quick, get promoted quickly, they move up from a socioeconomic standpoint? We just take a snapshot of Hollywood. How many young lives have been swept up into the prosperity of Hollywood that are absolute disasters now? I mean, it's amazing. We, well, how does that happen? Everything's working out for them. Because in the midst of prosperity, there must be temperance. There must be sobriety. Paul's saying, even when I was prosperous, I still was wholly dependent upon God. Even when I was prosperous, I was, I was thankful and grateful for the blessing he was pouring out upon me. You see, when, we come, when prosperity comes into our life, we have a tendency to go, okay, thank you, God, I've got it now. I don't need to rely upon you. Things are good. Job's good. Bills are good. Family's good. Health is good. And we move away from God. And these temptations are no less difficult than the afflictions of want and poverty. And yet Paul says, I've learned to be content in both. Whether I'm poverty stricken or experiencing great prosperity. Now, lest you think that Paul, because he is an apostle has super saint status. And therefore, he wasn't prone to grumbling against God when he was suffering. And he did not suffer any of the temptations of being ungrateful when he was prosperous. Let's, let's set that straight. 
This is a man, a sinful fallen man. And so the only way that he could be content in the midst of prosperity and poverty is if he had something other than himself, specifically someone other than himself. Paul says, I have learned over time and experience by the revelation of the Holy Spirit to have a disposition of heart that is contingent. Listen, not on my circumstances, not on my poverty, not on my prosperity, but upon God. My heart is fixed and growing and content as a result of who God is and what he's done through Christ, not as a result of anything that's taking place in my life. Paul says, I found a secret. And it's a great translation in the NIV. It comes from the word musterion, where we use the word mystery. He said, I found the mystery. I learned a mystery. I figured something out. God showed me something through my experiences, through my hardship. And now I get it. I didn't get it when I was younger, but I get it now. And I'm content. Because I've stopped trying to find contentment in all the external stuff. I kept, Paul said, I I stopped trying to say to myself, well, once I get married, then I'll be content. Well, once I have children, then I'll be content. Well, once Israel is straight, then I'll be content. Once all the churches are secure, then I'll be content. He stopped that because he realized it's never going to be like that until Christ comes again in glory. There'll always be reason for discontent on the outside. So he says, it's got to be something internal. This mystery, this radical contentment that most of us are still highly skeptical of, even as we sit here. I know you hear this and you say, this is the word of God and I believe it, but we don't believe it. We haven't learned it. We know it, but we haven't learned it. Paul tells us what this this radical contentment is, where it comes from, that enables us to overcome the restless, perpetual, unsatisfied desire. He tells us in Colossians 2, listen closely. Paul says, my purpose, talking to the church Colossae says, my purpose is that you may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. The mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, Jesus Christ to Paul brought complete and total contentment, ultimate satisfaction. And it was through the gospel, being saved by grace, that he was ushered into this. And it was through the gospel that there was grace enough not just to save him, but then to fill him and cause him to overflow regardless of his situation, regardless of his poverty. And therefore, he could say that through the grace of God, he was able to bear any trial of any kind without resignation. He was able to enjoy times of plenty without becoming arrogant and self Righteous. Paul understood that the saving grace that comes to the cross is a filling grace that makes the heart radically content. No matter what your situation. And that's a good thing because all of us right now are in a different place, right? Some of us are experiencing great prosperity in life. Paul says there's contentment for that in Christ. Some of us are struggling right now. Some of us are experiencing forms of poverty. And Paul says that's okay because you can be content in Christ. Some of us are in that really weird middle place, which is almost more dangerous. That place where we're really not suffering poverty and we're really not rich. We're in that weird middle. And the middle seems almost more lifeless than either extreme. Suburbia. 
One author called it soggy suburbia. Let me read to you what he writes. Soggy suburbia, where all spirit seems to have leaked out of our lives and has been replaced by a garage sale clutter of cliches and stereotypes, securities, and fusions. A marshmallow culture, spongy and without substance, no hard lines to push against, no fiery spirit to excite, soggy suburbia. I mean, that's, most of us are not totally poverty-stricken, and most of us are not you know, flying Lear jets. Most of us fall somewhere in that middle area. And Paul's saying, even in soggy suburbia, there's radical contentment in Christ, in the person of Christ, to know him, to enjoy him. King Solomon, centuries earlier, revealed in Ecclesiastes the absolute futility of trying to be content by our circumstances. I mean, a very popular phrase, even in the common culture, he said, a life of self-indulgence in order to bring contentment is vanity of vanity, all vanity, all vanity. And his analysis, we know from scripture, came from personal experience. He would have been, Solomon today would have been the model consumer right? I mean, every ad would have been directed right at Solomon. Be, break free and feel. Spoil yourself. Turn it loose. You deserve a break today. Indulge yourself. Solomon said, I will. And he did. Solomon did in every capacity. I mean, Solomon, he, he indulged in the physical, sexual, philosophical. He, had, he engaged and focused on wealth, on building, on power. And he learned that they were all lies. That none of them satisfied, not one. Chuck Swindoll, in commenting on the life of Solomon, said this. He said, in spite of the extent to which Solomon went to find happiness, because Solomon left God out of the picture, nothing satisfied. And it never will. Satisfaction in life under the sun will never occur until there is a meaningful connection with the living Lord above the sun. None of it satisfied Solomon. Vanity, vanity, all vanity. And so Paul has lived this out. He gets it. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin. He was on that road. He said, it's all lost. It's all meaningless apart from Christ. And so he says to the Philippians, and he said to me, and he says to you, listen, I know a mystery. I have a secret. And I'm telling you, it's Christ. It's the person of Christ. It's the relationship with Christ. It's knowing Christ as your Savior and Christ as your Redeemer and Christ as your lover and Christ as your friend and Christ as your daily, daily companion. He's saying if you have him, then contentment will permeate your life no matter what your circumstances look like. You know, the Episcopal Church used to daily have a prayer that went like this. I don't know if they still do. They would pray, give us minds always contented with our present condition. That's a great prayer. Give us minds always contented with our present condition. Not minds that go up and down based upon how good or bad things are, but give us a heart, give us a mind that is so joyful and steadfast and content in Christ that everything can be good or everything can be bad and my heart is still in the Lord. Who, who doesn't want that? If you don't want it, you're a fool. We can agree upon that, right? So how do you get it? Point number three, God's power over self-will. God's power. How, how are we to learn this? I mean, it's one thing for me to tell you, it's Christ. All right, he's he's the, the answer to the problem, right? He's the revelation of the secret of the mystery. 
But how are we to take the mystery that Paul has, that he's learned, and how do we become completely content? Not partially, not a little bit, but all the way through and through. How do we become deeply satisfied in Christ and our love for God and God's love for us and our love for one another so that we will live in a manner that brings him honor and glory in all situations? If you don't resign yourself to defeat in this and say, there's no way, this is not possible. And you don't ascribe to Paul some super apostolic saintly power that only he had and only he could be like this. Then our initial response to this, if you're not saying it's totally bogus, which many do, even within the church, they say it's not possible because of their life experiences. Then usually the, the, the natural response, which is not the right response, is, okay, I got it, Pastor. I'll try harder. I'll try harder. Then, if I try really hard, then... I'll be satisfied. That means that when I'm down or I'm in a financial bind or I'm struggling to make ends meet or I'm failing physically or emotionally if I'm totally out of sorts, I will try to be more content. I will hear the cultural slogan say to me, it won't last forever. How do you know? I will listen to them tell me, if at first you don't succeed, come on, you can finish that one. Try, try again. Or there's always tomorrow. How do you know that? Or, hope springs eternal. Or when we're prosperous, we say to ourselves, I won't become conceited. Hmm. I won't move away from God. I won't become self-righteous. I won't become proud. I'll stay humble. I'll stay generous. I'll stay near the throne. That won't happen to me. I won't be like the rest. So Lord, make me prosperous and I'll handle it well. A wiser man in a wiser time said in Proverbs 30, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me only my daily bread. Why? He said, Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. If you've lived long enough, then you know. And if you haven't, then listen. That trying to move your life in such a way to be good when times are bad and to stay good when times are good by manipulating your external circumstances, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And the more you've tried to control it and manipulate it and hold on to it, the more it slips through your fingers and goes the opposite direction. Self-will, mind over matter, hyper-suggestive tricks, they're just that. They're tricks. They're tricks. They don't work. They're not answers. They're not solutions. In fact, Paul reveals in verse 13 that even trying harder by exercising your own power is part of the problem for many of us. Many of us type A, type double A people. It's the wrong way to go. He tells the Philippians where to get the power, the strength, the ability to learn what he had learned and lived as he had lived Verse 13, he says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, as we close this, I got to unpack it a bit. Because if I leave you with that, you go, oh. Because that, Paul is saying some things and he's not saying others. And if we don't stop for a little bit and look at it, then we can get all sideways on this. When Paul says, I can do everything, he's not being arrogant. He's not claiming his own abilities. He's also saying that When he says, I can do everything, he's not saying you can do everything. Okay? You take the Apostle Paul, you put him in a flight suit, 
Put him in a P3 at 10,000 feet and say, land the airplane, apostle. Right? He's not going to land the airplane. Okay? He doesn't have that skill set. So he's not bragging. He's not saying he can do anything. So what is he saying? I mean, what, that's what sounds like what he's saying. Listen closely, saints. Paul is saying that he's realized now, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of God, and the experiences that he's gone through, that when he is weak, then he has strength. When he has died to himself, his wants, his desires, his direction, his passion, his will, and he comes into Christ and he submits himself, then there's strength, then there's power. He got this. And he saw this. Lived out in his life. In his weakness, there was great success. Now that's, that's a mystery as well. And that's a profound revelation. Because when Paul said, when I wasn't trying to do it my way, according to my will, by my power, and I submitted to you and I became ultimately weak, you made me strong, and your will played itself out, and it went correctly. He could then bear any trial and perform any duty and subdue any evil temptation. He could meet all the temptations because of the power of Christ. Why? It was through him. It was knowing him. Personally, intimately, and daily, Paul was given the strength by God to be content. He says, I can do everything through him who gives me the strength. This was not vain self-reliance, and it wasn't just through his life experiences. Paul says, I can do. And that's, that's in the first person Singular, meaning Paul had the power. It was his power, but it was given to him by God. And it was given to him by God as a result of his relationship with Christ. And it was there as a result of his daily proximity to God. Not just, I'm going to pray the prayer of salvation, I'm going to be saved, and then I'm good to go. It was daily intimacy with the living God that gave him the strength and the power. So what he's saying is, it's not any intrinsic ability of my own. It's not my super stateliness. It's not that I'm an apostle. It's not the strength of my body or my mind or my own will. It's my redeemer. It's my God. It's Christ. He gives it to me freely. And because of that, I am strong. Paul was living out the Lord's teachings in John 15, 5. A verse you know well. Listen. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will what? He will bear much fruit. And then the most telling part of the passage. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What? Say that again. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. Nothing good, nothing honorable, nothing true, nothing lovely. The only thing you can do apart from me is sin. And sin more. And make a mess of things. And this is the starting point for both contentment and strength in Jesus. It's knowing your nothingness. It's knowing your nothingness. Paul had learned something that we still refuse to believe and that we are nothing. We are powerless and we are eternally discontent apart from Christ. That only when we are weak just as we had a chance to sing, then what? When you're weak, then you're strong. You say, that doesn't make any sense. Not in the world, it doesn't. Because in the world, when you're weak, you're weak. When you're strong, you're strong. But in the gospel, it's upside down. It's always upside down, right? When Paul became weak, then he became strong. When he realized there's nothing, then he became something. When he realized he was powerless, he became powerful. God gave it to him through Christ. 
Paul had learned that in order to be content, and this is the hardest part, and equipped to overcome any and all circumstances, he had to die. He had to die to himself. He had to die to that same self that was always saying, you are good enough, you are successful, you are beautiful, you are powerful. That same self that lies to us again and again, that uh, adhering to that marketing drumbeat, obey your thirst, just do it, have it your way. And the weird thing is, even in the church, we bought into this. Because when we are experiencing poverty or hunger or thirst, physically, emotionally, spiritually, when things are prosperous, we think that we can draw upon, even the teachings last week, we'll say, oh, all right, I'm poverty stricken, I'm struggling right now, what should I do? Pastor Keith said, pray, I'll pray, that'll fix it. Oh, what else did he say? He said, uh, meditate on the word of God. Give me a passage, any passage. Oh, good. Meditate on it. That'll fix it. What else did he say? Because that's not working. What was the other trick that he gave me? He said, practice the things that Paul practiced. Okay, what did Paul do? He served. He ministered. He loved. He said, I'll do these things. That must be the trick. What other tricks do you got to throw out at us? It's not a trick at all. And Paul got that. He's trying to tell the Philippians, should you pray? Yes. Should you meditate? Yes. Should you practice? Yes, but not as a trick. We do all these things to come into the presence of God, to enter into his throne room. Because in his presence, we see that we are weak. We see that we are nothing. We see that he is holy. We see that we are powerless. And he then, through Christ, gives us all those things. But that means we must die. And we pray to get what we want, we meditate to change the way we think, and we practice the faith to put God in our debt. And that's pathetic. I don't know why I'm laughing, it's terrible. Paul had learned that he could do all things through God because he had become nothing before God first. So let me just ask you, have you been there? Have you started there? In fact, you've got to end there. Have you made your way into that place where you say, I am nothing apart from Christ? I have nothing good to offer. I have no power. I have no wisdom. I have no love. No goodness resides in me. That's a hard teaching. You won't hear it proclaimed much. You're not going to. We're going to tickle ears in the contemporary church. We will tell you you're lovely and beautiful and and powerful apart from Christ. The gospel doesn't say that. You must become nothing before God first. Let me read to you from Eugene Peterson. This hit me. He writes, we must be on guard against our spirituality becoming a cafeteria through which we walk, making selections according to our taste and appetite. The consumer mentality towards God and faith is distressingly common. We must combat it by first, listen, immersing ourselves in an environment in which our capacities, our power, are reduced to nothing. A place where we are at the mercy of God to shape his will in us. We must enter the tomb of Christ. What? What? We must enter the tomb of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. When Jesus Christ was put in that tomb, when he was buried... It was the end of all religion. When Jesus Christ was buried, it was the end. He put an end to all the do-it-yourself, try-harder, self-salvation strategies that we conjure up every day. Everything that men and women through the ages had hoped to get from God ended in the tomb. 
For the disciples... I mean, here this man is doing miraculous things, things they'd never seen before. For the disciples, the movement came to an end in the tomb. For all the disciples who had followed him, the, the, the hope of a, a temporal kingdom and Rome being overthrown and Jerusalem rising again came to an end in the tomb. Death. For the Romans and the Jews, it was the end of a troublemaker. But for those who had come to trust and believe in the Lord, the tomb was the place where contentment and power would begin in the tomb of Christ. You know, for centuries, churches have celebrated Holy Week. With the culminating end of Holy Week being Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Resurrection Sunday. And it's fascinating in our culture, the liturgical churches, they still, there's a great emphasis on Good Friday, right? And that makes sense in light of our culture. Because on Good Friday, Christ is put to death, not us. And on Resurrection Sunday, he's raised to life and we get to rise with him. That's good. But what about Holy Saturday? What about that day where Christ is in the tomb dead and we're called to enter that death with him? It's not surprising that we don't celebrate Holy Saturday In fact, we skip right over it. We go straight from Good Friday right to Resurrection Sunday because Holy Saturday means that we must die too. It means we got to go in the tomb too. Holy Saturday calls us to enter the tomb of Christ and die as well so we can be born again. Because unless you die, you can't be born again. Jesus' time in the tomb is probably the most uncelebrated event in the life of Christ where the believer, every believer, must begin and to a large degree stay if they are to be born again and grow. Holy Saturday, where we recognize, where we recognize that we are dead and need to be raised to new life in him, by his power. Holy Saturday, where we see that we are bound and need to be set free, where we are nothing and powerless and hopeless and need him to make us alive. Do you remember, you probably don't, several weeks ago, actually a few months ago now, In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, listen, he says, we were told that Jesus made himself nothing. He became nothing. He humbled himself and became obedient to death on the cross. Therefore what? Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is the gospel order. Death before life. Nothingness before somethingness. Powerlessness before power. The grave before the resurrection. Hopelessness before hope. I mean, Christ said in Mark 8, whoever wants to save his life will what? Will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever dies for me and for the gospel will save it. Is it any wonder that we don't preach on this much? Because this means your will, your desires, your hopes, your dreams being submitted to God. That means you, after Good Friday, entering the tomb with Christ, say, I die with you, Lord, and I'll rise with you, and I will live the life that you've called me to live. You give me new desires. You give me new hopes. You give me new dreams. You shape me. Because I've tried to shape myself, and I'm an absolute mess. The longer I try, the worse it gets. We must die. 
C.S. Lewis wrote this, and the first time that I read it, it had an impact on me, I jotted it down. Listen, it's a little long, but it's worth reading. Lewis writes, the terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self. All your wishes and precautions to Christ. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree torn down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out completely. And then he says, hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. My desires will become your desires. You want to be content? You got to enter the tomb. You want to be satisfied deep in your soul? You got to enter the tomb. You want strength to live through circumstances, good and bad? You got to enter the tomb. You have to die to your pleasures, your desires, your wants, your needs, and come to Christ and say, you fill me, you shape me. You breathe life into me. Seeing Christ, there was a description I read on Christ in the tomb. And he was describing it from the father's perspective, seeing his son's lifeless body in the tomb. And he talked about the great grief that brought to the father to see his son's lifeless body in the tomb. And then he said, but what an incredible testimony to us of his radical love and pursuit for our souls. That he would have his son dead in a tomb so that we would be able to rise again. That he would not only allow, but construct an outcome for his son to end like that so our end wouldn't be like that. He said, it's extraordinary. Being content in Jesus and his redeeming work means this, and we'll close that you need not sink under any trial because Christ will lift you up. That you need not yield to any temptation for when you are tempted, he will provide the way out. He's right there. That you need not be harassed or vexed or tormented by improper thoughts or unholy desires for it says that he will guard your heart and mind. He'll do it. He'll march right around it. That you need not dread what is to come your future, the trials, the temptations, the wants, the persecution, the prosperity. Because all those fears can be buried in the tomb with Christ. And he will make you new. The Bible says that perfect love, who is Christ, casts out all fears. All fears. I pray that we would not shrink from the duty that Christ calls us to. That we would not dread persecution. We would not fear death. For in all these circumstances, in all them, good or bad, Jesus Christ is our unchanging friend, Savior, and Redeemer. And he's there. If you have entered the tomb, then you've been raised from the dead. And that means Christ's strength, his power reigns in you as well. You must learn it as Paul has learned it. You must take what you know to be true and push it in so it changes the way you live. So that you can become 
as the apostle said, like shining stars in the universe. Brilliant and glorious people living in such a way that the world sees your love for God and for one another. And they, 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 they know that God's real. That it testifies to him. So what do you think? You say, all right, you're done preaching because I'm done with you preaching. Calling people to die is not received well. I don't care what the time is of the culture. It's easier to give you a 30-second soundbite to obey your thirst or to be good to yourself or to take a break today or tomorrow for the rest of your life. That's easy. We like to hear that. The Bible calls us to enter the tomb and to die with Christ. Because when we do, we'll be raised with him. Be wise this morning. Hear the word of God and submit to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this mystery that you revealed to Paul being revealed to us. That we, we too can have this contentment so deep and so real that regardless of the circumstances, Lord, we won't falter. And even when we do, Lord, you'll be there to pick us up. I pray, Father, that we would not take lightly this calling to put ourselves to death, to enter the tomb with Christ. That we would be wise enough to see that not submitting to you, going the direction that we want to go, that we think is best, according to our wisdom, leads to destruction. So to that end, Lord, make us wise. Cause us to see Christ for who he is and what he's done. And then to rest in his strength and in his power. So that we can, like the Apostle Paul say, we can do all things through Christ because he strengthens us. He's always there. He's always directing. He's always guiding. He's always lifting up. He's always convicting when necessary. He is there. It's his strength we draw from. And then enable us to draw from it. Better yet, cause us to draw from it. We pray for this power, Lord. Not so that we'd be glorified, but that you would be in our lives, individually and collectively as a church, so that you'd be honored and glorified. In Christ's name, amen.